I sometimes read uh, public domain books here on Leaves of Glen. And they were written a long time ago, uh, so they're usually uh, racist or sexist or bigoted. Uh, but in there somewhere and all that is a, a story, and that's why those stories are famous. Other times, I read uh, works from independent authors, and they're delightfully not racist, but they might have adult language or adult situations. So that's your warning, uh, but I'm sure you uh, are grown up enough to handle it. Don't write to me complaining. Oh, why, yes, a wizard can be dangerous, especially if he practices the dark art. Oh, oh, hello. Uh, welcome to the mansion of Leaves of Glen. A bit I do where I pretend that I live in a bigger house than I really do. And uh, I take you through rooms as I do the podcast. It's a lot of fun. I'm sure we all enjoy it. Uh, I was just thinking to myself about 1970s fantasy rock. It's a new thing that I'm diving into of my sound of the summer. Why am I talking about this? Because there's no facts about David Copperfield or Charles Dickens anymore. I've gone through all of them. In this episode, uh, I'm diving back into David Copperfield, which has 60 chapters, uh, and I'm only on chapter 22. I've been doing this since January, and uh, it's a good book, but my God, it's a long book. And as far as podcasts go, I really, I really married a turd on this one. But I gotta finish it. Burp. And so, uh, I'm just gonna talk about myself, since I got no fun facts about David Copperfield. Uh, now we can talk about, uh, the author. Uh, it's his eighth novel, uh, and it's published in 1849 to 1850, uh, in a serial, in a magazine. And, uh, then later, as a whole book in 1850, because he wanted to make more money, and it's widely considered his most popular work. Uh, he's born the 7th of February, 1812, and died the 9th of June, uh, 1870. Back to 70s fantasy rock. Uh, every summer, you gotta find a new album. And uh, lately, I've been making uh, my theme, my type of music, uh, just older stuff I've never heard of before. Uh, so I went through a phase of kind of underground folk music from the 70s, which eventually, this time, led me to fantasy rock from the 70s. Kind of like they all sound like Led Zeppelin, uh, but they're less well-known like a band called, just called Wizard, that's it. Another band is called Sauron from J.R.R. Tolkien. And all they do is sing about uh, J.R.R. Tolkien and just wizards and elves and stuff. Uh, one is just a warrior who says that he's not afraid to die. The whole song is, I laugh at the thought of death, just over and over. Another song is about watching out for a wizard because he's dangerous and he wants to get you. That's the whole song. They're ridiculous and in just fascinating to me because they're highly uncreative and hard to listen to, and I just love it. Uh, uh, you know, we could look into David Copperfield, the magician. We could learn about him. He keeps coming up every time I do searches. Uh, David Copperfield, the magician? Well, he's one of the most famous and highest earning magicians. Uh, his magic acts are best known for the combination of storytelling and illusion. And throughout his career of over 40 years, uh, Copperfield has been awarded 11 Guinness World Records. Eh, all right. Uh, a knighthood by the, uh, oh, the French government. That's second best, I guess, as far as knighthoods go. And a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. 
Even if David Copperfield is so famous, people know very little about his life and career. Now, so let's learn some more intriguing facts that, I, that we're not aware of. Uh, David Copperfield's not his real name. The famous American illusionist was born David Seth Kotkin. Eh, turd. On September 16th, 1956. He beat any other solo entertainer in the world in terms of earnings. That's dumb. Uh, David Copperfield was named the most commercially successful magician in history, and not without good reason. Uh, so far, he sold 33 million tickets, uh, worth over $4 billion. Fine. Magic performance is not his only business. Ugh. David Copperfield manages his own chain of re resort islands in the Bahamas. All right, why don't we just go over what we read in the last episode of David Copperfield. Uh, in chapter 22, we learn that David stays at Peggy's house while Steerforth stays at the inn, uh, so they don't hang out much. Steerforth keeps going on and on his own with the uh, fishermen, uh, while David uh, goes to his old house uh, at the rookery. One evening, he returns to find Steerforth all upset, and Steerforth won't explain why, and they talk about leaving the next day. Steerforth says he's bought a boat, and that Litmer has come into town. And Emily's having a secret meeting with Martha, a former resident of the village, uh, who has fallen into disgrace because of some unexplained sexual transgression. Well, with that, let's dive into the story. Well, all right, here we go with chapter 23. I corroborate Mr. Dick and uh, eh, choose a profession. When I awoke in the morning, I thought very much of little Emily and her emotion last night after Martha had left. I felt as if I had come into the knowledge of these domestic weaknesses and tendernesses in a sacred confidence and that to disclose them, uh, even to steer forth, would be wrong. I had no gentler feeling toward anyone than toward the pretty creature who had always been my playmate, and whom I have always been persuaded and shall always be persuaded to my dying day. There's a lot of commas here. This is impossible to read. And then, devotely loved, period. The repetition to any ears, even to Steerforth's, of what uh, she had been unable to repress when her heart lay open to me by accident, I felt would be a rough deed. Unworthy of myself, unworthy of the light of our pure childhood, which I always saw encircling her head, uh, I made a resolution, therefore, to keep it in my own breast, and there it gave her image a new grace. Uh, while we are at breakfast, that letter was delivered to me from my aunt, as it contained a matter on which I saw, I thought Steerforth could advise me as well as anyone, and on which I knew I should be uh, delighted to consult him. I resolved to make it a subject of discussion on our journey home. Uh, for, the, for the present, we had enough to do in taking leave of all of our friends. Uh, Mr. Barkis was far from being the last among them in his uh, regret at our departure, and I believe uh, would have even opened the box again. Oh, the box where he keeps the money. That's right. He made a big deal out of, like, I don't know where the money comes from. You should leave the room. And then he clearly opened a big, loud, creaky box. And sacrificed another guinea. If it would have kept us eight and forty hours in Yarmouth. Uh, 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 Peggy and all her family uh, were full of grief at her going. And the whole house of Omer and Joram uh, turned out to bid us goodbye. 
And there were so many seafaring volunteers in attendance on Steerforth. And what our portmanteau uh, went to the coach, uh, that if we had had the baggage of a regiment with us, we should hardly have wanted porters to carry it. I wish that would happen to me. If I ever had to leave, then just see a sea of people came out crying and lamenting my having to leave. That has never happened in my entire life, and I believe that we all deserve that. Well, we departed to the regret and admiration of all concerned and left a great many people very sorry behind us. Yeah, I want that. Give me that. Do you stay long here, Litmer? said I, as we stood waiting to see the coach start. Uh, no, sir, he replied. Uh, probably not very long, sir. Uh, he can hardly say just now, observed Steerforth carelessly. He knows uh, what he has to do, and he'll do it. Uh, that I'm sure he will, said I. And Litmer touched his hat in acknowledgement of my good opinion, and I felt about eight years old. Yeah, because Litmer's a jerk. He keeps uh, infantilizing everyone all the time. He touched it, oh, oh, once more, wishing us a good journey. And we left him standing on the pavement, eh, a respectable, uh, a mystery as any pyramid of Egypt. Eh, for some little time, we held no conversation, Steerforth being unusually silent, and I being sufficiently engaged in wondering uh, within myself when I should see the old places again and what new changes might happen to me or them in the meanwhile. Uh, at length, Steerforth, uh, becoming gay and talkative in a moment, as he could uh, become anything he liked at any moment, pulled me by the arm. Uh, uh, find a, a voice, David. Uh, what about the letter you were speaking of at breakfast? Oh, said I, taking it out of my pocket. It's from my aunt. Uh, uh, what, uh, what does she say, uh, requiring consideration? Why, she reminds me, eh, Steerforth, said I, that I, I came out on the, this expedition to look about me uh, and to think a little, uh, which, of course, you have done. Indeed, I can't say I have, particularly. Uh, tell you the truth, I'm afraid I have forgotten it. The hell is this conversation about? Well, look about you now and make up for your negligence, said Steerforth. Look to the right, ah, and you'll see a flat country with a good deal of marsh in it. Ah, look to the left, and uh, yeah, you'll see the same. And look to the front, eh, you'll find no difference. Uh, and look to the rear, and there it is still. I laughed, and replied that I saw no suitable profession in the whole prospect. Uh, which was perhaps to be attributed to its flatness. Uh, what says our aunt on the subject, inquired Steerforth, glancing at the letter in my hand. D does she suggest anything? Why, yes, said I. She asked me here if I think I should like to be a, a proctor. Uh, what do you think of it? Uh, I don't know, replied Steerforth coolly. It may as well do that as uh, anything else, I suppose. I could not help laugh again, ha-ha, at his balancing of all callings and professions so equally, and I told him so. Uh, what is a proctor, Steerforth, said I. Why, he is a sort of monkish attorney, replied Steerforth. He is, uh, to some faded courts held in doctors, commons a, a lazy old nook near St. Paul's churchyard, uh, what, what solicitors are to courts of law and equity. He is a functionary whose existence in the natural course of things would have terminated about uh, 200 years ago. <laughs> and I can tell you best what he is by telling you what Doctor's Commons is. 
This conversation's going down the tubes. It's a little out of the way. A place where they administer what is called ecclesiastical law. I'm not looking that up. And play all kinds of tricks with obsolete old monsters of acts of parliament, uh, which three-fourths of the world know nothing about, and the other fourth supposes to have been dug up in a fossil state. There's been no period so far in this sentence. In the days of the Edwards period. There it is. It's a place that has an ancient monopoly in suits about people's wills and people's marriages and uh, disputes about uh, ships and boats. Nonsense, Steerforth, I exclaimed. You don't mean to say that there is any affinity between nautical matters and ecclesiastical matters. Uh, I don't, indeed, my dear boy, he returned, but I mean to say that they are managed and decided by the same set of people down in that same doctor's commons. Uh, You shall all go there one day, Find them blundering through half the nautical terms in, in Young's dictionary, apropos of the Nancy, what, having run down the Sarah Jane, what, oh, these are boats, or Miss Peggotty and the Yarmouth boatman, having put off in a gale of wind with an anchor and a cable to the Nelson Indian man in distress. This is all confusing. I have no idea what I'm reading right now. And you shall go there another day and find them deep in the evidence, pro and con, respecting a clergyman who has been uh, misbehaved himself. And you shall find the judge in the nautical case and the advocate in the clergyman's case, or contrawise. They are like actors. Now a man's a judge, and now he is not a judge. Now he's one thing, and uh, now he's another. Now he's something else. Change and change about. But it is always a very pleasant, profitable little affair of private theatricals presented to an uncommonly select audience. But advocates and proctors are not one and the same. This conversation is killing me. Said I, a little puzzled, are they? This is like when I was a kid and my school made me watch the cartoon about the bill becoming a law and they had a song and everything. And I still walked away not understanding anything about how a bill became a law because my brain just turned off. I just didn't want to hear it. And that's kind of what's happening to me right now with this. No, returned Steerforth. Uh, The advocates are civilians, men who have taken a doctor's degree at college, which is the first reason of my knowing anything about it. Uh, The practice employ the advocates. Both get very comfortable fees, and altogether they make a a mighty snug little party. And on the whole, I would recommend you to take to the doctor's commons kindly, David. Uh, They they plume eh, themselves on their gentility there, I can tell you. Uh, It is that any satisfaction. I made allowance for Steerforth's light way of treating the subject. Is that really a light way? And considering it with reference to the state air of gravity and antiquity, which I associated with that, quote, lazy old nook near St. Paul's churchyard, did not feel indisposed toward my aunt's suggestion, which she left to my, my free decision, making no scruple of telling me that it had occurred to her on her lately visiting her own proctors and doctors' commons for the purpose of settling her will uh, in my favor. Well, that's a laudable proceeding on the part of your aunt, uh, at all events, said Steerforth, when I, when I mentioned it, and, and one deserving of all encouragement. Daisy, always oh, back to calling him Daisy, so emasculating. This is not a friendship. My advice is that you take kindly to doctors' commons. I quite made up my mind to do so. 
I then told Steerforth that my aunt was in town awaiting me, as I found from her letter, and that uh, she had taken lodgings for a week at a kind of private hotel in Lincoln's Inn Fields, where there was a a stone staircase uh, and a convenient door in the roof. Uh, My aunt, believing, firmly persuaded that every house in London was going to be burnt down every night. That's a bizarre fear to have. We achieved the rest of our journey pleasantly, sometimes recurring to Doctor's Commons, oh, for Christ's sake, and anticipating the distant days when I should be a proctor there, uh, which Steerforth pictured in a variety of humorous and whimsical lights uh, that made us both merry. Nah. When we came to our journey's end, he, he went home, engaging to call upon me the next day but one. And I drove to Lincoln's Inn Fields, where I found my aunt up, and waiting a supper. If I had been round the world since we parted, we could hardly have been better pleased to meet again. My my aunt cried outright as she embraced me, and said, uh, pretending to laugh, that if my poor mother had been alive, that silly little creature would have shed tears. She had no doubt. So you left Mr. Dick behind, aunt, said I. I'm sorry for that. Ah, Janet, how do you do? As uh, Janet curtsied, hoping I was well, I observed my aunt's visage lighten very much. Oh, I'm sorry for it, too, said my aunt, rubbing her nose. I have uh, had no peace of mind. Trot. (laughs) I forgot she called him Trot. Uh, Since I have been here, before I could ask uh, why, she told me. I am convinced, said my aunt, laying her hand with melancholy firmness on the table, that Dick's character is not a character to keep uh, the donkeys off. I am confident he wants strength of purpose. I had to have left Janet at home uh, instead, and then my mind might perhaps have been at ease if I ever there was a donkey trespassing on my green, said my aunt with emphasis. There was one this afternoon at four o'clock. A cold feeling came over me from, from head to foot, and I know it was a donkey. I tried to comfort her on this point, but she rejected consolation. It was a donkey, said my aunt. <laughs> it was the one uh, with, a, with, a, with a stumpy tail. Uh, which has that murdering sister of a woman rode uh, when she came to my house. Uh, this has been, ever since, the only name my aunt knew for Miss Murdstone. If there is any donkey in Dover whose audacity is harder to me to bear than another's, that, said my aunt, striking the table, is the animal. Well, Janet ventured to suggest that my aunt might be disturbing herself unnecessarily and that she believed the donkey in question uh, was then engaged in the sand and gravel line of business and was not available for purposes of trespass, but my aunt wouldn't hear of it. Supper was comfortably served and hot. Though my aunt's rooms were very high up, whether that she might have more stone stairs for her money or might be nearer to the door of the roof, I don't know and consisted of a roast fowl, a steak, and some vegetables, uh, to all of which I did ample justice, uh, and which were all excellent. But my aunt uh, had her own ideas concerning London provision, and uh, ate but little. I suppose this unfortunate fowl was born and brought up in a cellar, said my aunt, and never took the air except on a hackney coach stand. I suppose uh, the steak may be beef, But I don't believe it. Uh, Nothing's genuine in the place, in my opinion, but the dirt. Uh, Don't you you think the fowl may have come out of the country? Aunt, I hinted. Certainly not, returned my aunt. It'd be no pleasure to a London tradesman to sell anything 
which was that he pretended it was, I did not uh, venture to controvert this opinion, but I, I made a good supper, which is greatly satisfied to, to her to see me do. And when the table was cleared, Janet assisted her to arrange her hair and uh, put on her nightcap, which was uh, of a smarter construction than usual. What does that mean? In case of fire, my aunt said. What? It's a flame-retardant nightcap? And to fold her gown back over her knees, gross, don't do that, these being her usual preparations for, for warming herself. Uh, before going to bed. Neither made her, according to a certain established regulations from which there is no deviation, however slight, could ever be permitted a glass of hot wine and water. What? Like separately, or do you mix them? What's the point? And a slice of toast, uh, cut into long, thin strips. Well, then that's just breadsticks. With these accomplishments, we were left alone to finish the evening, my aunt sitting opposite to me, drinking her wine and water, weird, soaking her strips of toast in it, weird, one by one before eating them, and, and looking benignly on me from among the borders of her nightcap. Well, trot, she began, uh, what do you think of the practice plan? Or have you not begun to think about it yet? Oh, I have thought a good deal about it, my dear aunt, and I have talked a good deal about it with Steerforth. Uh, I like it very much, indeed. I like it exceedingly. Come, said my aunt. That's cheering. I have only one difficulty, aunt. Uh, say, what is it, trot? She returned. <laughs> Why, I want to ask, aunt, uh, as this seems, from what I understand, to be a limited profession, whether my entrance into it would not be a uh, very, uh, 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 expensive? Oh, it will cost, returned my aunt, uh, to article you just a thousand pounds. Now, my dear aunt, said I, drawing my chair dear, I am uneasy in my mind about that. It's a, oh, it's a large sum of money, and you have expended a great deal on my education, as, as have always been as liberal to me in all things as it was possible to be. Uh, you have been the soul uh, of generosity. Uh, surely there are some ways in which I might be begin life with a, hardly any outlay, and yet begin with a good hope of getting on by resolution and exertion. Are you sure that it would not be better to try that course? Are, are you certain that you can afford to part with so much money, and that it is uh, right that it should be so expensive? Uh, I only ask you, my second mother, to consider. Are you certain? That is an incredibly wordy way of saying, oh, you've done a lot already. You shouldn't. That's it. That's all you need to say. My aunt finished eating the piece of toast on which she was then engaged, looking me full in the face uh, all the while. That's got to be weird, staring you dead in the eye while eating your breadsticks that you dip in <laughs> warm... Uh, lukewarm uh, water and wine, and then setting her glass in the chimney piece and folding her hands upon her folded skirts, replied as follows, oh God, Trot, my child, if I have any object in life, it is to provide you uh, for being good, a sensible, and a happy man. Oh, I'm bent upon it. So is Dick. I should like some people that I know to hear Dick's conversation on the subject. It is sagac sagacity, is wonderful, but no one knows the resources of that man's intellect except myself. She stopped for a moment to take my hand between hers and went on. It is in vain, Trot, to recall the past unless it works for some influence upon the present. Perhaps I might have been better friends with your poor father. Perhaps I might have been better friends with that poor child, your mother. 
Even after your sister Betsy Trotwood disappointed me. Oh, in case you're just catching up now. Uh, he, he was supposed to be a girl. So she's constantly bringing this up all the time. But Betsy Trotwood. Uh, then you came to me, a little runaway boy, all dusty and wayworn. Perhaps I thought so from that time until now. Trot, you have ever been a credit to me and a pride and a pleasure. I, I have no other claim upon my means, at least. Here, to my surprise, she hesitated and was confused. No, uh, I have no other claim upon my means. And uh, you are my adopted child. Only be a loving child to me in my age uh, and bear with my, my, my whims and fancies. You would do more for an old woman whose prime of life was not so happy or conciliating as it might have been than ever that an old woman did for you. That was the first time I had heard my aunt refer to her past history. There was a magnanimity in her quiet way of doing so and of dismissing it, which would have uh, exalted her in my respect and affection, if anything could. All is agreed and understood between us now, trot, said my aunt. And we need uh, to talk of this no more. Oh, 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 give me a kiss. And I will go to the commons after breakfast tomorrow. We had a long chat by the fire before we went to bed, and I, I slept in a room on the same floor with my aunts. Yeah, I was a little disturbed in the course of the night by her, by her knocking at my door as often as she was agitated by a, by a distant sound of hackney coaches or market carts and inquiring uh, if I heard the engines. But toward morning she slept better and suffered me to do so too. At about midday, uh, we set out for the office of Messrs. Uh, Splenlow and Jorkins and Doctors Commons. My aunt, who had this other general opinion in reference to London, that every man she saw was a pickpocket, uh, gave me uh, her purse to carry for her, which had ten guineas in it uh, and some silver. Well, with that, why don't you and I uh, retire up to the master bedroom? where I can speak softly to you and whisper into your ear about the latest upcoming romance novels from Penguin Random House Books. Ah, there you are. Sitting on my silken sheets of the master bed in the master bedroom. Uh, You look great. Have I ever told you that you truly are beautiful? And you are. But you could look better. You could always look better. Why don't you try putting on this crown and, uh, and hold this scepter in this weird red cape with the white collar thing with all the black spots that I never understood as I read to you uh, about a new book coming up called Playing the Palace by Paul Rudnick. Uh, their love story captivated the world. The Crown Prince and, and that guy from New York. When a lonely American event planner what, starts dating the gay Prince of Wales, a royal uproar ensues. Is it true, a love, or the ultimate meme? Nah. I'll find out this hilarious romantic comedy uh, after having his heart trampled on by his cheating ex, Carter Ogden is afraid love just isn't in the cards for him. Oh, he still holds out hope for a tiny corner of his heart, uh, but even in his wildest dreams, he never thought he'd meet the Crown Prince of England, much less do a lot more with him. Yes, growing up, he'd fantasized about the handsome, openly gay Prince Edgar, but who hadn't? And when they meet by chance at an event Carter's boss is organizing, yeah, this 
professional planner? All right, fine. Uh, Carter's sure he's imagined all that sizzling chemistry. Or, oh, was it mutual? This unlikely but meant-to-be romance sets off media fireworks on both sides of the Atlantic, with everyone having an opinion on their relationship and the intense pressure of being constantly in the spotlight. Oh, oh, Carter finds ferocious obstacles to his happily ever after, including the eh, tenacious disapproval of the Queen of England. Carter and Prince Edgar fight for a happy ending to equal their glorious international beginning. It is a match made on Valentine's Day and in tabloid heaven. <laughs> With that, if you want to hear about that story, uh, you can get it on May 25th uh, for 16 bucks at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Bookshop.org, Hudson Booksellers, IndieBound, Powell's Target, my favorite name, Books A Million, and Walmart. Well, the way you look disappoints me. Uh, I don't find you attractive. So why don't you take off that outfit and let's go back down to the library and finish reading this book. Well, uh, we made a pause at the toy star, uh, shop in Fleet Street uh, to see the agents of St. Dustin strike upon the bells. Uh, we had a time our going uh, so as to catch them at it at 12 o'clock and then went on toward Ludgate Hill and St. Paul's Churchyard. Oh, we were crossing the former's palace uh, when I found that my aunt greatly accelerated her speed and, and, and it looked frightened. I observed at the same time that a, a, a lowering, ill-dressed man, oh, who had stopped and stared at us in passing a little before, uh, was coming so close after us as to brush against her. Trot! Uh, my dear Trot! cried my aunt in a terrified whisper and pressing my arm. I don't know what I am to do. Dad, don't be alarmed, said I. There's nothing to be afraid of. Uh, step into a shop and I'll soon get rid of this uh, fellow. No, no, child, she returned. Don't speak to him for the world. I entreat, I order you. Yeah, good heaven, aunt, said I. He's nothing but a, a sturdy beggar. Uh, you, don't, you don't know what he is, replied my aunt. You don't know who he is. You don't know what you say. So, in case anyone uh, hasn't heard anything before this, uh, it's been a while. Uh, she used to have some creepy guy showing up at her place uh, by her fence. And then she'd talk to him and like give him money and make him go away. So I think this guy's followed her into the city. We had stopped in an empty doorway while this was passing. And uh, he had stopped too. Don't even look at him, said my aunt as I turned my head indignantly. Uh, but get me a coach, my dear, and wait for me in St. Paul's uh, churchyard. I wait for you, I replied. Yes, rejoined my aunt. I must go alone. I must go with him. Uh, with him, aunt? Uh, this, uh, this man? I am in my senses, she replied, and I tell you I must uh, get me a coach. However much uh, astonished I might be, I was sensible that I had no right to refuse compliance with such a, pre a preparatory command. I hurried away a few paces and called a, a hackney chariot, ooh, a chariot, which was passing empty. Almost before I could let down the steps, my aunt sprang in, oh, I don't know how, and the man followed. As she waved her hand to me to, to go away, 
so earnestly that, all confounded as I was, I turned from them at once. In doing so, I heard her say to the coachman, uh, Drive anywhere. Uh, just drive straight on. Presently, the chariot, ooh, a chariot, passed me, going up the hill. What Mr. Dick had told me, and what I supposed to be a delusion of his, now came into my mind. I cannot doubt that this person was the person of whom he had made such mysterious mention, though what the nature of this hold upon my aunt could possibly be I was quite unable to imagine. After half an hour's cooling in the churchyard, I saw the chariot coming back, and the driver stopped beside me, and my aunt was sitting in it alone. She had not yet sufficiently recovered uh, from her agitation to be quite prepared for the visit. Uh, we had to make as uh, she desired to get in the chariot and to tell the coachman to drive slowly up and down a little while. Uh, she said no more except, Ah, my dear child, never ask me what it was and don't refer to it until she had perfectly regained her composure uh, when she told me she was quite herself now and uh, we might get out. On her giving me her purse to pay the driver, I found that all the, all the, all the guineas were gone and the only loose uh, silver remained. Doctor's Commons was approached by a, a little low archway. Before we had taken many paces down the street beyond it, the noise of the city seemed to melt as if by magic into a, ooh, into a softened distance. A few dull courts and narrow ways brought us to the skylighted office of Spenlow and Jorkins. In the vestibule, of which a temple, accessible to pilgrims without the ceremony of knocking, three or four clerks were at work as copyists. One of these, ah, little, eh, little dry man, sitting by himself, wore a, wore a stiff brown wig, what, that looked as if he were made of gingerbread, and rose to receive my aunt, and showed us into Mr. Spenlow's room. Mr. Spenlow's in court, ma'am, said the dry man. It's uh, an arch's day, but it's close by, and I'll send for him directly. As we were left to look about us while Mr. Spenlow was fetched, I availed myself of the opportunity. Uh, the furniture of the room uh, was old-fashioned uh, and dusty. Uh, the green baize on the top of the writing table had lost all its color. It was withered uh, and pale as an old pauper. There were great many bundles of papers on it, uh, some endorsed as allegations, and some, uh, to my surprise, as libels, <laughs> burp, and some as being in the consistory court, and some in the arches court, and some in the prerogative court, some in the admiralty court, some in the delegates court, uh, giving me the occasion to wonder uh, much how many courts there might be in the gross, and how long it would take to understand them all. Besides these, there were sundry immense manuscript books of evidence taken on an affidavit, strongly bound, and tied together in massive sets. A set to each cause, as if every cause were a history in ten or twenty volumes. All this looked tolerably expensive, I thought, and gave me an agreeable notion of a proctor's business. I was casting my eyes with increasing complacency uh, over these and many similar objects when hasty footsteps were heard in the room outside, and Mr. Spendlow, in a black gown trimmed with white fur, came hurrying in, taking off his hat as he came. Ah, he was a little light-haired gentleman, nah, with undeniable boots. <laughs> I've never met someone with undeniable boots. 
I want to know what that looks like. Are they just super shiny and small and petite? And the stiffest of white cravats and shirt collars. Oh, he is buttoned up, mighty trim and tight. What? And must have taken a great deal of pains with his whiskers, which were accurately curled. Uh, His gold watch chain was so massive that a fancy came across me that he ought to have a, a sinewy golden arm. What? To draw it out with? <laughs> like which they come up with the gold beater shops. Well, apparently that's a reference to a thing that happened in that time that I do not understand, but I like the visual imagery. Uh, he got up with such care, and he's so stiff that he could hardly bend himself, being obliged when he glanced at some papers on his desk after, after sitting down in a chair to move his whole body uh, from the bottom of his spine like punch. I don't know what that means. But we're moving on. I had previously been presented by my aunt and had been courteously received. And now he said, And so, Mr. Copperfield, you think of entering into my profession? Now, I casually mentioned to Miss Trotwood when I had the pleasure of an interview with her the other day with the inclination of his whole body punch again, whatever that means, that there was a vacancy here. Miss Trotwood was good enough to mention that she had a nephew who was her particular care and for whom she was seeking to provide genteelly in life. That nephew, I believe, I have now the pleasure of. Punch again, which I don't know what that means. I bowed uh, acknowledgments and said that my aunt had mentioned to me that there was that opening and that I believed I should like it very much. That I was, ooh, strongly inclined to like it. It had taken immediately to the proposal. And that I could not have absolutely pledged myself to like it until I knew something eh, more about it. That although it was little else than a matter of form, I presumed I should have an opportunity of trying how I liked it before I bound myself to it irrevocably. Oh, surely, eh, surely, said Mr. Spenlow. We always, uh, in this house, propose a ah, month, uh, an initiatory month, I should be happy myself to propose, ooh, two months, uh, three, an indefinite period, in fact, but I have a partner, Mr. Jorkins. And the uh, premium, sir, I returned, is a uh, thousand pounds. And the premium, stamp included, is a thousand pounds, said Mr. Spenlow. As I have mentioned to Miss Trotwood, I am actuated by no mercenary considerations. A few men are less so, I believe, but Mr. Jorkins has his opinions on these subjects, and I am bound to respect Mr. Jorkins' opinions. Mr. Jorkins thinks a thousand pounds too little, in short. I suppose, sir, said I, still despairing to spare my aunt. Uh, that is not the custom here. If an article clerk were particularly useful and made himself a perfect master of his profession, uh, I cannot help blushing. This looked so like praising myself. I suppose it is not the custom in the later years of his time to allow him any. Mr. Spenlow, by great effort, just lifted his head far enough out of his cravat to shake it and answered, anticipating uh, the word salary. No! I will not say what consideration I might give to that point myself, Mr. Copperfield, if I were unfettered. Uh, Mr. Jorkins is immovable. I was uh, quite dismayed by the idea of this terrible Jorkins. But I found out afterwards uh, that he 
uh, was a mild man of a heavy temperament whose place in business was to keep himself uh, in, eh, in the background and be constantly exhibited by the name as most obstinate and ruthless of men. If a clerk wanted his salary raised, Mr. Jorkins wouldn't listen to such preposteration. Uh, if a client were slow to settle his bill of costs, uh, Mr. Jorkins was resolved to have it paid. And however painful these things might be, and always were, to the feelings of Mr. Spenlow, Mr. Jorkins would have his bond, period. That was a huge, big, long, never-ending sentence. The heart and hand of the good angel Spenlow would have always been open but for the restraining demon Jorkins. As I have grown older, I think I have the experience of some other houses doing business on the same principle of Spenlow and Jorkins. Uh, it was settled that I should begin my month's probation as soon as I pleased, and that my aunt need neither remain in town nor eh, return in its expiration as the articles of agreement of which I was to be the subject and could easily be sent to her uh, at home for her signature. When we got so far, Mr. Spenlow offered to take me into court then and there, and show me what sort of place it was. As I was willing enough to know, we went out with this object, leaving my aunt behind, who would trust herself, she said, in no such place, and who I think eh, regarded all courts of law as a sort of powder mills that might blow up at any time. Mr. Spenlow conducted me through a paved courtyard formed of grave brick houses, which I inferred from the doctor's names upon the doors to be the official abiding places of the learned advocates of whom Steerforth had told me, and into a large, uh, dull room, not unlike a chapel, to my thinking, on the left hand. Uh, the upper part of this room was fenced off from the rest, uh, and there, on two sides of a raised platform of the horseshoe form, uh, uh, sitting on easy, old-fashioned dining room chairs, uh, where... Sundry gentlemen, uh, red ground, uh, gowns and gray wigs. Who I found to uh, be the doctors aforesaid, uh, blinking over a little desk, like a pulpit desk, in the curve of the, of the horseshoe, uh, uh, was an old gentleman, yeah, whom, if I had seen him in, in an aviary, I would certainly have taken for an owl. <laughs> but who I learned was the presiding judge. In the space within the horseshoe, lower than these, that is to say, on about the, the level of the floor, were, were, were sundry other gentlemen. Oh, of Mr. Spenlow's rank, dressed like him in black gowns and white fur upon them, uh, sitting in a long green table. Oh, their cravats, their cravats were in general stiff, I thought, and their looks, oh, haughty. But in this last respect, I personally conceived I had done them uh, injustice, for when two or three of them had had to raise and answer a question of the presiding dignitary, I never saw anything more uh, sheepish. The public, represented by a boy with a comforter, and a, a shabby, genteel uh, man, uh, secretly eating crumbs out of his coat pocket, uh, was warming itself at a stove in the center of the court. Uh, the languid stillness of the place was only broken by the... Uh, by the chirping of this fire, and by the voice of one of the doctors, uh, who was wandering slowly through a uh, prefect library of evidence, and, and stopping to put up from time to time uh, at little roadside inns of argument on the journey. Altogether, I have never on any occasion made one at such a cozy, dozy, old-fashioned, time-forgotten, sleepy-head little family party in all my life. 
and I felt it would be uh, quite a, a soothing opiate to belong to it in any character, except perhaps as a suitor. Very uh, well satisfied with the dreamy nature of this retreat, I informed Mr. Spenlow that I had seen enough for that time, and we rejoined my aunt in company with whom I presently departed from the commons, feeling very young uh, when I went out of the Spenlow and Jorkins on account of the clerks poking one another with their pens to point me out. There we are. Arrived at Lincoln's Inn Fields without any new adventures, uh, except encountering an unlucky donkey in a costermonger's cart who suggested painful associations to my aunt, uh, and we had another long talk about my plans when we were safely housed. And I knew she was anxious to get home, and between fire, food, and pickpockets, uh, could never be considered at her ease for half an hour in London. Uh, I urged her not to be uncomfortable on my account, but to leave me to take care of myself. Uh, I have not been here a week tomorrow without considering that too, my dear, she returned. There is a furnished little set of chambers to be let in the Adelphi trot, which ought to suit you to a marvel. With this brief introduction, she produced from her pocket an advertisement carefully cut out of a newspaper, burp setting forth that in Buckingham Street, in the Adelphi, there was uh, to be let furnished with a view of the, ooh, of the river, a singularly desirable and compact set of chambers forming a genteel residence for a young gentleman, a member of one of the inns of court or otherwise with immediate possession, uh, terms moderate, and can be taken for a month only if required. Why, this is the very thing. Aunt, said I, flushed with the possible dignity of living in chambers. Uh, but then, and then come, replied my aunt, immediately resuming the bonnet she had a minute before laid aside. And we'll, we'll go and look at them. Away we went. The advertisement directed us to apply to Miss Krupp on the premises, and we rung the area bell, which we supposed to communicate with Miss Krupp. It was not until we had rung three or four times that we could prevail on Miss Krupp to communicate with us, but at last she appeared, uh, being a stout lady, uh, with a flounce of flannel petticoat below a nankeen gown. Uh, let us uh, see these chambers of yours, if you please, ma'am, said my aunt. Uh, for this gentleman, said Miss Krupp feeling in her pocket for the keys. Uh, yeah, for my nephew, said my aunt. And a sweet set they is for sitch, said Miss Cup. Yeah, so we went upstairs. Uh, they are both on the top of the house, a great point with my aunt being near the fire escape and consisted of a little half-blind entry where you could see hardly anything, a little stone-blind pantry where you could see nothing at all, uh, a sitting room, then a bedroom. The furniture was rather faded, Eh, but quite good enough for me. And sure enough, the river was outside the windows. As I was uh, ooh, delighted with the place, my aunt and Miss Krupp withdrew into the pantry to discuss the um, terms, while I remained on the sitting room sofa, hardly daring to think it possible that I should be destined to live in such a noble residence. After a single combat of some duration, what single combat, they returned, and I saw, to my joy, both in Miss Krupp's countenance and in my aunt's that the deed was done. Eh, isn't the last occupant's furniture? inquired my aunt. Yes, it is, ma'am, said Miss Krupp. Eh, what's a, eh, what's become of him? asked my aunt. 
Oh, Miss Crump was taken with the troublesome cough, in the midst of which she articulated with much difficulty, uh, he, he took ill here, ma'am, and ugh, exclamation point, ugh, exclamation point, ugh, exclamation point, dear me, exclamation point, M dash, he died, exclamation point. Hey, <laughs> exclamation point, what'd he die of? <laughs> asked my aunt. Well, ma'am, he died of drink, said Miss Crupp in confidence. And smoke. Smoke? You don't mean chimneys, said my aunt. No, ma'am, returned Miss Crupp. Uh, cigars and pipes. Well, that's not catching trot at any rate, remarked my aunt, turning to me. Eh, no, indeed, said I. In short, my aunt, seeing how enraptured I was uh, with the premises, uh, took them for a month with leave to remain for 12 months when that time was out. Uh, Miss Crupp was to find linen and to cook and every other necessary that was already provided, and Miss Crupp expressly imitated that uh, she would always yearn toward me as a son. Well, that's creepy. They just met. Go away. I was to take possession the day after tomorrow, and Miss Crupp said, Thank heaven she had now found someone she could care for. S-U-M-N-U-N. On our way back, my aunt informed me how she confidently trusted that the life I was now to lead would make me firm and self-reliant, which is all I wanted. She repeated this uh, uh, several times the next day, uh, in intervals in our arranging of the transmission of my clothes and books from Mr. Wickfield's, uh, relative to which, and to all my late holiday, I wrote a long letter to Agnes, of which my aunt took charge, as she was to leave on the succeeding day. Not to lengthen these particulars, I need only add uh, that she made a handsome provision for all my possible wants during my month of trial that Steerforth, to my great disappointment, and hers too, did not make his appearance before she went away, because he's a jerk. That I saw her safely seated in the Dover coach, exalting in the coming discomfiture of the vagrant donkeys, with Janet at her side, and that when the coach was gone, I turned my face to the Adelphi, pondering on the old days when I used to roam about its subterranean arches, and on the happy changes which had brought me to its surface. Well, welcome to the smoking room. Here we review uh, what we read. Uh, chapter 23. Oh, you can hear my cat yelling at me. Uh, David and Steerforth leave Yarmouth. Uh, Miss Betsy has written to suggest that David should uh, become a proctor. Exactly what that is. I still don't totally know. Steerforth agrees uh, that that'd be sweet. They return to London, where Miss Betsy has arrived to help settle David's new career. Uh, she proposes to apprentice him as a proctor to Mr. Spenlow. And the cost is a ton. But she says, I'll pay for it. Don't worry about it. On the way to the practice office, uh, in the doctor's commons, burp, they see a man in the street. And it disturbs Miss Betsy. And uh, she goes off privately with this creepy guy. And she comes back, and she doesn't have any more money on her. So, this reminds uh, David about what Mr. Dick said about a mysterious stranger being a problem back at her house. Miss Betsy says nothing about the encounter, and she helps David get his arrangements all set up in London, and then she goes back home. What's good? Well, David's finally got a sugar mama to take care of him. She's uh, covering all his costs, getting him set up with a career, because before he was bottling 
Was it an alcohol? He was bottling something. And that was supposed to be his career from the, uh, the Murdstones. But Miss Betsy's setting him up with a real career where he can actually hang out with old men. And that's a career everyone wants, to hang out with crabby old men. Uh, what sucks? Well, that Miss Betsy's got uh, secrets. Apparently, secrets that are horrible. A secret where someone is uh, probably uh, got you know, information about her she doesn't want out there, so he's uh, extorting money from her. What did we learn? Well, David's life has changed completely now that he's 20. Uh, he went from living on the streets, trying to work his way through London to get to Miss Betsy, uh, and she was pretty crabby at him and didn't seem very welcoming or loving or anything. Uh, but now she's setting him up with a swanky home. Uh, we also learned that everyone has secrets. And this weird guy that keeps making Miss Betsy, or milking her for all of her money, uh, is a shadow looming over her. Uh, kind of like how Emily was helping out uh, this one woman in her town that had her own sexual secrets and had to get out of there. Uh, and lastly, secrets. I have secrets. I have terrible things that I've done in my past that, uh... I'm going to let you in on right now. For example, my neighbor next door went out of town for the whole week. She asked me, hey, can you watch my cats? Uh, feed them, let them go outside, make sure they're back in the house at the end of the night, lock all the doors, that kind of thing. And I said, sure. I haven't had a working dryer for almost two months now. I'm sick of hanging my clothes out because uh, it makes me look like a, a lesser man. Established men have dryers at work, but I'm out there with my underwear hanging on the clothesline uh, like a common person. And also, it doesn't matter if it's outside or not, everything's rock hard. It's just stiff, especially towels. Towels feel like sandpaper on your skin when they're not in a dryer and they're just drip drying outside. So I took all my stuff, washed it, brought it over to her house while she's out of town, and I dried them one after another. I spent from... I think Wednesday all the way through to yesterday. Uh, just Well, that'd be Saturday. Just bringing stuff over to dry it. And oh, God, all my stuff is soft. I washed all the kids' sheets. I washed my own sheets. Clothes, everything. And everything's soft. Oh, the blankets I got laying around my house, they're not covered in cat hair anymore because you could use the dryer to get them out. That's my hideous secret, which I hope you never tell my neighbors. With that, thanks for listening, and uh, I will see you next week. Ah, uh, well, it appears you found me in the part of the podcast I hate the most, where I tell you all about the places on the internet where you can find me. Tell I hate this because of the sound effects making it sound like a stormy night uh, in the drawing room of the damned. Now nah, there's there's that. Uh, I, I, are you cool? I like cool people. It's the reason why I got involved in this business to begin with, just to meet cool people, not losers. So if you're cool, uh, feel free to go over to my website, uh, nuzzlehouse.com. You can see a backlog of everything I've ever read. Uh, along with episodes from the Book Boys and uh, blah, blah, blah. You can also find me on Instagram, uh, which is uh, House Nuzzle. And conveniently enough, uh, Twitter, which is also at House Nuzzle. 
Annoyingly, YouTube made me pick a name instead of just a house nuzzle. So I got Glenn Nuzzles. So I guess you search for that if you want to watch a screen that doesn't do anything and just hear my voice. Uh, and since, uh, since I think you might be cool, you can always just email me directly. Glenn.nuzzles at gmail.com. But don't, uh, don't email if you're a, a nerdlinger or a dork. Now, back to business. I can't believe I drank all of them already. There's gotta be one left. 